Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Joe Genie. This is Ambassadors at Large. Happy holidays to everyone. Happy uh, Christmas, Kwanzaa, Boxing Day, New Year's, Hanukkah, and a few others. And I'm sure as you partake of your holiday revelry, what you really want is a podcast, just a light, chill podcast about grand strategy, international order, and the fate of mankind. And that's good, because that's exactly what we're going to give you today, because I'm delighted to introduce uh, our guest who uh, thinks about this sort of thing for a living and uh, thinks about it just all the live long day and and gets paid to do so. And I'm kind of jealous. Uh, Laura Daniels, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Joe. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, you uh, you work for a think tank here in D.C. and you deal with international order and strategy. Uh, what is international order? If you were going to sort of explain this to uh, to uh, a broad audience, um, what what do you do all day? What are you what are you dealing with? Right. Everyone likes to ask me that question, especially after I tell them that I work in international order and strategy. It usually leads to a good deal of confusion. Um, Usually the next question is, okay, but what region do you focus on? No, no, no. We we look at the world, the whole world. Um, So really what we look at is we look at how different states, generally states, but also other actors in the uh, on the globe, are working with one another. So we want to see what are the rules of the game? Are they cooperating with one another? Are they competing with one another? If they're competing, how are they competing? Are they doing it through means of diplomacy? Are they going through the UN? Are they fighting one another on the ground? Um, What does it look like? And so we try to see what those rules of the game are, even though there's no sort of referee judging, there's no written rule book. Nonetheless, different states, different powers, different international organizations uh, encourage different kinds of norms to emerge anyhow. So we look at that. So th- we've had this sort of what, what John Lewis Gaddis calls the long peace, where basically since the end of the Second World War, we've had this liberal international order. Mm-hmm. Um, we had the Cold War, but what we, we what, what's been markedly absent is major conflict between great powers, uh, Russia's annexation of Crimea notwithstanding. It's shockingly rare for great powers to seize territory uh, and and just take it and colonize it or annex it, uh, which was generally how great powers behaved until the end of the Second World War. And that's... uh, what what is it about the liberal international order, the order that we've seen for all, you know all, throughout your life and my life and our parents' lives, that distinguishes it from its predecessors? Right, exactly. So so you noted that first distinction, which is that we've seen fewer great power wars um, after World War II and all the carnage. Uh, the victors tried to sit down and agree on some sort of system that might discourage war, at least on that scale. Um, And it seems to have done pretty well. One of the ways that they did this was really looking at trying to build international organizations like the UN. Um, They'd tried once with the League of Nations. It didn't really work out. So then they went back to the drawing board. um, And they tried to find ways that we could establish a rules-based order. So one in which different countries were encouraged to resolve conflict through uh, diplomacy and through following certain 
uh, international laws or different codes that had been made in these international organizations um, as opposed to just breaking out into military conflict. So the question that people always ask, though, is what is it that has led to the long peace? Was it the bipolar nature of the United States and the Soviet Union? Was it nuclear weapons that people were afraid to to attack each other? Or was it the idea that you had an increasingly nation-state-based system where sovereignty and territorial integrity were generally respected and and you know of all of the countries all the countries that liberated themselves from colonial rule in the aftermath of the second world war and the collapse of the british and french empires uh, shockingly few changed their borders although many tried in part because the idea of the nation state is this sacrosanct thing and the idea that its inter- in, in, internal affairs should be its own even if that rarely sort of holds up purely in practice uh stabilized the system and made it so that there was a giant cost to stealing each other's territory or, or, or trying to, to use force to, to overwhelm a, a weaker neighbor. Right. Yeah. Um, that's a huge loaded question, right? Because a lot of people still argue about this. Um, and that argument is going to continue for a while. It's, yeah. <laughs> it started off as a question sort of became a commentary. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. And it's a good commentary too. Um, so I'm going to divide this up into two sections because first you mentioned the Cold War. And then, of course, there's been some time that has passed since the end of the Cold War. So during the Cold War, like you said, um, there's debate on that, right? Like John Mearsheimer is is a scholar who's famous for saying that, well, um, nuclear weapons kept the peace, right? And so with the Cold War over, watch out, you know? Um, But the Cold War has ended, and and so far so good, but we'll see. We'll see what happens, right? There's still, history is ongoing. Um, But following the Cold War, uh, we saw, you you mentioned that that bipolar balance of power right during the Cold War, and then afterwards, um, with the fall of the Soviet Union, we really saw a unipolar world. So uh, the U.S. as the the superpower, right, in the world, um, and and the U.S. was really underpinning that liberal international order that you brought up at the beginning of the podcast. So. Um, that order that they tried to establish following World War II, they started to set out making different international organizations, um, encouraging trade, encouraging you know the, the UN, but also the Bretton Woods system, which is that um, you know like the IMF and, and different systems to encourage um, an international economy based on these, this rule-based system, and so. Following the Cold War, the U.S. really underpinned a lot of that with its leadership in its position as a superpower. So um, you had a very big question there, but if I was going to touch on on some of those um, points that you made, that's really what I'd focus on. Yeah, and part I mean, it, it's there's there's the idea of the liberal order based on the this sort of rule based system, and there's also the idea of the sort of international sovereign order, which is what I'm particularly attached to in the thing, which is this idea that, that the nation state is, is, I mean, the United States in 1992 or 1995 had more power relative or, or 1945 for that matter, had more power relative to, uh, any of its rivals than maybe any great power ever. And yet it did not 
attempt to say, oh, you know what we're going to do? We're going to take the Philippines back. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> like we, right, right. I, you know, as an American, I'm, I'm whatever our, our faults in foreign policy, I'm, I'm proud of us. We, we, we behaved with, with more restraint and, and carved something out something that I think has more staying power, or at least I hope it does, mm-hmm. than any great power before us. But you argue that we're now entering a period of flux where the liberal order is being challenged. Yes, I do argue that for sure. Um, so we are seeing changes. You mentioned um, Russia's grab of Crimea earlier on, and that was a, a big thing, right? Because like you said, it, it's pretty rare that great powers um, just go in and do a territory grab um, these days, right? Following World War II. So yeah, like in the, in, the Cold, in the Cold War, you would have, you, you had an empire that was didn't call itself such mm-hmm. y- y- the russians could control the eastern bloc they controlled the other soviet satellite states but people use the idea of you know the russians and the soviets pretty much interchangeably moscow was the centerpiece of it all the, the, the red army would storm into into czechoslovakia or hungary and the west would do nothing because to do anything would be to risk world war 3 but now all of a sudden this happens in crimea and we think that I mean, is it really different or or are we really seeing that Russia's actions are changing the way the international order works? Right. Yeah. So we would definitely see a lot of proxy wars happening during the um, the Cold War. But I would argue that there, that was a lot of back and forth. Right. You'd, you'd see forces just continue to clash on the peripheries um, where these two big powers were supporting different sides. Um, And now, even though that's definitely part of that is true in Ukraine, right, because you have the West sort of, certainly they support um, in rhetoric, if not also in in actual support, support um, the one side, um, and then the Russians are supporting more the um, insurgency side in Crimea, um, and now also in the Donbass and other areas too. So um, there, that does happen as well. But there wasn't during the Cold War this sort of plant a flag in the area and say that this is, you know, now our territory and, and we're just taking it back. It's hard, it's hard for me to understate how shocking uh, the, the the fact that Russia, the fact that Russia intervened in Crimea was not, it didn't actually surprise me that much given what happened to, to its uh, favored government in, in Ukraine, which, which had been sort of thrown out of power in, in popular protest after it fired on protesters. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that Russia intervened because Crimea is so important historically to it because of the sort of sui generis nature of what how Crimea came to be part of Ukraine and not part of, of Russia because of its history, because of Russia's military base, it's Devastopol. Like that part wasn't surprising. But what I figured they would do is what they've done in the Donbass, what they did in Georgia, what they did in Transnistria, which is to destabilize states that might join NATO and prevent them from doing so by making them not be able to control all of their territory by backing these sort of breakaway groups. The idea that Russia would just say, no, this is ours yeah. is, was was stunning. Yeah, yeah, and I think it caught a lot of people by surprise, too. Um, you're right to, to have this sort of hybrid war approach and, and encourage these frozen conflicts has been more their MO. So to see in Crimea just to, to be like, nope, this is ours now, has <laughs> been a very different approach um, um, from what we've seen before. So, yeah, it is surprising to you, surprising, I think, to everybody. It's more, I mean, what Obama said that Russia is behaving like a 19th century power is, um, 
that that pretty much sums it up. I mean, like the idea of Russia having intrigue in the you know the Balkans in 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 Ukraine, uh, in, you know, in Syria, trying to uh, achieve. Uh, spheres of influence where you know it it's it's exactly. maybe has access to warm water ports it's particular interest in syria with its long-standing relationship with the assad regime mm-hmm. no, no, none of this is particularly new it's just that we thought that for some reason we sort of thought that that this sort of thing didn't wasn't wasn't going to happen anymore in some ways it's almost this this threat at least to the the international order is a new it, it, it's not a new thing it's it's right. Just it's, it's back to the future. History repeating. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and so in a lot of ways, this is Russia's old MO, right? Because they would want to expand and expand because they always wanted to have a strong buffer zone. They would want to, this, this periphery made them very nervous. So they would always try to reinforce the area around Russia, whatever that may be. Um, but quite right. Ever since um, World War II, we really haven't been seeing a lot of this. Um, and again, that rules-based system has definitely seemed to deter that kind of um, behavior in on the global scale, right? One of the questions is, when there's a challenge to this order, is it able to respond? And if we look at what, what Obama did in response and, and, and what Europe did, you saw sanctions against Russia, which hurt Russia, it didn't stop what it was doing, but it hurt it, uh, a delegitimization campaign against what they were doing. No one has recognized that they that they control Crimea. Um, a recommitment, a, a sort of rekindling of, of, of NATO as, as a thing that matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, Obama <laughs> going to, to the Baltic states, which are the, the, the NATO members where that have the highest risk of something like this happening to them right. and reaffirming and the, the security yeah. guarantee in more explicit language than anyone before him. Mm-hmm. And also, but also not doing anything in, in Ukraine that would risk world war three. To me, that kind of sounds like the right response, but it also didn't stop the Russians from doing what they're doing. So did the liberal international order succeed or did it fail? Right. It's interesting, right? I mean, Part of the reason everybody was so surprised was because the liberal international order had worked in that it would, you know, there would be a sort of punishment for anybody who tried to do any sort of territory grabs. And that's what constrained people before or or states um, from doing such a territory grab because, uh, you know, the result for Russia hasn't been great, right? They got Crimea, okay but they've been alienated. They've turned a little bit towards China, but China doesn't really see them as a a long-term friend. Um, And, um, you know, they also saw all those sanctions, like you mentioned, so their economy has has suffered from that too. So it hasn't helped that much. And then in addition, they've inherited this area that's been um, very troubled and war-torn, particularly in the Donbass. They're continuing to fight there and, and it begs the question of really, like, what sort of economic gain could they have after, you know, just totally leveling a place? Um, so that's, I think, uh, I, I think it works in both ways. Yes, the liberal international order didn't work um, to constrain Russia and keep them from doing this. But at the same time, everyone's a little bit shocked that Russia was willing to take on this kind of a cost within those that liberal international order for Crimea. 
Now, now this is only one of several things that make the international order seem like it's it's in a state of flux. Another one that you mentioned is the rise of China. So perhaps we could you could talk a little bit about whether I mean we've we've seen this before. You have a, a power that is relatively declining, like the United States. Uh, and a power that is rising and and is highly nationalistic and and seeks a, a greater role in the international community, can China play within the existing system? Can it, it's definitely creating as well its own institutions, financial, military, uh, trade based. Uh, can it do both? Or, and is conflict between the two likely or or, or inevitable? Yeah, I mean, that's the million-dollar question right now. Of course, everyone wants to know. Um, With China, it's really interesting because they are working within the system, but they're also not working against it, but they are working within the the system and also sort of duplicating it to try to get some leverage and to get more ownership of what's going on in the world, more say um, as a great power, right? So if you look at the rhetoric of Chinese leadership, it's really interesting. You always see them say, you know, we support the liberal international order. We don't want to change it. Um, we support the UN charter, etc. Um, but in addition to that, they're like, well, but we have a sort of different interpretation than you guys might um, on the other side of the globe of what that means. Um, so supporting the UN Charter, they really feel that um, that includes support for sovereignty, so um, not meddling in China's affairs, not meddling in their region, so establishing more of a sphere of influence um, than we've been used to seeing in <clears throat> the liberal international order uh, since World War II, right? Um, in addition, they're also creating that duplicate system that you mentioned. So um, a really great example of this is the AIIB, right? Um, which you, you've seen a lot of people come in and, and join um, different countries, you know, from the UK. Everybody except the US pretty much um, has, has jumped on that bandwagon. Um, and the question is, how will that play out in the future? Um, and if there's any tension between the U.S. and China, that might become a leverage point. One of the things that really strikes me as kind of fundamental also to the liberal order is the, the and something the United States has been kind of the guarantor of is freedom of navigation. And so it seems like the 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 island building uh, epidemic in the in the South China Sea and the question of our ships going to be able and, and planes fly over the South China Sea. Uh, without basically having to get permission from the Chinese, uh, is this going to be, what is the 21st century of, of shipping going to look like in the place where shipping is probably the most, I mean, this is some of the most important shipping terrain in the world. Right. Yeah. Uh, people are definitely concerned about that, of course. Um, and I think right now it's a little bit unclear. Um, at this point, I think China knows that it would be trouble if they really tried to block anything significant, but they are certainly seeking a claim, right? Um, so we don't know yet. We don't know how that'll play out, and we're still sort of trying to position ourselves carefully to um, not, you know, rock the boat, haha, so to speak, but also to make sure that um, we are showing a presence in that area, too. So, so China's rise and and Russia's sort of reversion to a nationalist almost imperial power are 
two of the major challenges, but but both of those are things we've sort of seen before. One of the interesting things that makes the world seem less secure today than perhaps it actually is, is that we've built this system based on sovereign states. You look at the United Nations, you, you look at international systems, it's states that are represented at them. Uh, it's states that, that have, you know, are granted the monopoly on the use of force. And yet from above and below, it seems like this, the, the, the state is in some ways under under threat. You have transnational issues like migration, like climate change, refugee flows, international crime organizations, and terrorism, where one state, it, you, you know, you can't just have Fortress USA for, or Fortress <laughs> any country. People can go across borders and bring their problems with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, you also have internal issues like the collapse of states. And we've seen this before as well. I mean, we saw this in the Balkans, we saw this in Somalia. But when something like Syria happens it, it and the international community looks powerless to stop it, or at, at worst is, is actively fueling it by backing multiple sides in the conflict, uh, it seems like the international order is under strain from both above and below. Yeah. Um, <laughs> another big question there, right? Um, so I would say it's, first of all, as far as your transnational issues comment, for sure that's happening. But we're also seeing, in addition, just to, you know, thicken the plot a little bit further, um, with the the actions that Russia has taken um, and with what we're seeing with China and the, the South China Sea, we're seeing also this return to um to geostrategy, right? Um, so that definitely focuses on states and on territory, on geography, right? So you see all these transnational issues happening. You also see a return to these issues rooted in geography and statehood. Um, and you're right, you're seeing pressures from kind of all over. So what we're seeing now is just all of these different shifts. And we're trying to look at this and say, like, okay, what's happening? What's, what's, what does this mean for the future? So, and this, this brings me to, I mean, uh, we, for those of you, those who have been listening to this podcast since it, since the beginning, we talk about Syria a lot on this podcast. So let's <laughs> let's just t- go at it one more time. What's a, what's supposed to happen in a country like Syria? Because if you look at, for for example, if you look at the United States as as the the underwriter of the liberal international order and and you know the the primary power in the long piece, uh, we have different interests. You say that geostrategy has become a thing. So if you're the United States, you may want to stick it to to Russia or to Iran, in which case you want to take a certain policy in Syria, which is to overthrow the government. But you also want stability. You don't want a a, a state collapse. You don't want chemical weapons on the loose. You don't Mm -hmm. want ISIS controlling Syrian territory or or taking control of the whole country. And so in that sense, you don't want to throw Assad out of power. And then you want democracy, but it has to be a pluralistic democracy democracy that that where minorities are respected and that requires a political settlement that could take decades Mm -hmm. so in which case you almost do nothing except on the diplomatic front as john Kerry trots around the world (laughs) continuously trying to do so what's (laughs) supposed to happen in when a country just collapses right yeah uh well there's one question of what's supposed to happen and then there's the question of you know what what is most beneficial for us for it to happen, right? So on the beneficial side, we don't want instability, right? Because we find it at our doorstep eventually, right? We're seeing that with the refugee crisis. Instability is generally bad, even if it's not happening in your corner of the world, eventually it'll probably show up in yours. 
Um, so, so there's that aspect of it. And then, um, but Syria is a really complicated uh, case, right? Because if we, like you said, if we do nothing, um, we've still seen that instability brewing. And we've seen a lot of problems arise from that. We saw ISIS show up. Um, nobody likes them. There's all kinds of problems brewing from it. But if you get involved, then we're talking um, the bigger picture of geostrategy and what's Russia doing, what's Iran doing, how does our engagement there get us involved with them. Um, so there's, it's a sticky situation, right, to sum it up sort of for you. So, so I guess my final question would be, it's really difficult to, to judge an entire presidential administration, particularly when it's not quite done yet. Mm-hmm. But looking at, at Barack Obama's tenure, there are sort of two ways to look at, at what he did one, one, or what he has done. One is that, uh, I guess there's several different ways to look at what he's done. But, but one of the common ways is that he's sort of like weak or vacillating or not getting involved or is determined for political reasons not to get involved. Another is that he's actually thinking strategically in the long term and he just says, he looks at Syria and he says, there's no good solution by, by America getting involved and I don't want us to, to saddle us with failure. Or, or, or even, it's just, you know, 50, 000, if we plunk 50,000 troops in Damascus, they won't help. Uh, they'll they'll get stuck. Everyone will be wound up shooting at them, and it'll cost us hundreds of billions of dollars, and it won't work, and it'll look like failure. And failure's not good for a great power. So, and and similarly in Ukraine, it's like, oh, Obama didn't stand up to the Russians. Well, if you stand up to the Russians, you might start World, World War Three, and right. uh, so you do all these other things instead to make it clear how far this can go and where this can't go. That sort of thing. So I I, I tend to def- to defend Obama as sort of someone who's thinking long term. But you also got, kind of get saddled with the, the, the things that happen on your watch. And so it, it seems like a lot of stuff has gone wrong mm-hmm. and that there's a lot of uncertainty because of a number of the, the things that we've talked about here. So in the long run, how do you rate what the United States is doing? Are we playing the game or are we just refusing to play the game? Right. I, I, think, I think Obama's in on the con. I think he's playing the game. I think... Um, You know, I I mentioned that dilemma that we face right now, which is don't get involved and we face a lot of instability in the region. Do get involved and it's a powder keg, you know, um, ready to ignite something with Russia, with Iran, with Assad himself. Um, So there's just all kinds of problems on either side of the equation. Um, So I think Obama has sort of made the best of this that he can. I don't think that he's actually sitting back and doing nothing or, or unsure of a strategy Um, even though I think he actually enforces that rhetoric himself just because he doesn't want to get dragged into it. So you always hear him saying, like, hey, we're not going to get dragged into a war with Russia here. We're not going to have a proxy war. We're not going to engage further in the Middle East, you know. Um, But nonetheless, you do see him, you know, you see him arming rebels. You see certain kinds of military support, although small, I think they are calibrated to try to push back and contain the situation as much as possible. Um, has it worked perfectly? Definitely not. But at the same time, it's it's definitely a sticky situation. So I think he is doing something. Yeah, and I mean, the, the one major intervention that, that he did militarily was in Libya. And it, it's one of these things where it looks really bad now, but 
you know, there's this apocryphal thing. I think it's Zhuan and Lai. I was looking this up the other day. <laughs> Go, goes to China in like this, the late 60s. Sorry. He, he goes to Paris in the late mm -hmm. 60s. Right. And he's asked about the French Revolution. And he mm -hmm. says it's too soon to tell. Yeah. Um, possibly apocryphal, but but a glorious story nonetheless. That's it's a like, great story. In the long run, <laughs> you, eventually you have, to, you have to toss out someone like Gaddafi. And perhaps this may or may not have been the best time to do it. But I, I feel like... At the time, I don't know, like I was at the UN when this happened and, mm. and I, it was just, it was really hard to, to, to see it was at that moment with the Arab Spring just kicking off and these nonviolent protesters being gunned down, Gaddafi making all of his threats, his own diplomats defecting at the UN and begging the Security Council to take action against their own government. It was, it, it was deeply moving and it would have been, it, it would have been really difficult morally to not do something right and and i i, I don't know like i i think that that in the long run we're going to remember we're going to remember that for better or worse we're going to remember syria but i think we'll remember it in the same way as the balkans we'll remember how it ends more than that it happened um right. and, and then uh we'll, we'll remember this as a, a time where we tried to bring middling powers not great powers that had been on our uh, our bad list, if you will, mm -hmm. in from the cold, Myanmar, Iran, Cuba. If you could have said in 2008 that we would see the kind of political progress with all three of those governments that we've right. seen, I, I, I think that, that, I mean, uh, that astounds me. And, and Obama, it seems like he's trying to sort of check all of these things that could be problems off our list because he knows that th that that... Russia's revanchism and particularly the rise of China are the things that we really have to be worried about and we really have to be looking at in the 21st century and that that's what's really going to define the 21st century is our ability to cooperate on transnational issues, but also deal with the rise of great powers and regional powers again and, and not have that descend into, in, into the kind of anarchy and, and, and imperial style takeovers that we saw in previous eras in human history. Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. Um, we'll see where it goes, right? That, that's my that's my defense. That's my that's my best defense. You know, it's right. too soon to tell. Right, <laughs> exactly. That's a good one to use. Uh, no, but I think you're right. Too soon to tell, but I think um, I think that's probably where we're headed. Both looking at these big powers um, and what to do about that. I mean, the situation with China it could be you know maybe 25 years down the line, but we're still looking at that right now because we know what's coming. Um, but also these big transnational issues. You know, we saw Obama pushing for um, climate change, right, um, within our own country and, and also internationally. Um, and so you see these transnational issues being a big ticket item as well. So there's a lot. There's a lot to do. <laughs> final, final question. What is, in, in, in grand strategic terms, what is the thing that scares you the most? Not in terms of like, it would be the worst thing that happened, but the thing you think is going to happen that scares you the most. <laughs> oh man, I have to pick one, really? <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I think that's a really good question. Um, I, I know... Um, there could be a lot of options, right? One would be, well, gee, we, if we're going back into this mode of um, 
big powers fighting with one another and big powers all have nukes now. That's kind of terrifying. Um, so it, it could be something that happens in a, a flash, so to speak, but it could also be something that happens long term. It could be um, climate change, you know, finally over time we try to work on it, but, um, you know, we just don't get there fast enough. So there's there's plenty to be scared of out there. Happy holidays on that note. Yeah, but, right. Um, so, you know, so- Here's here's my here's my worst case scenario for the it's sort of like the anti neocon uh, <laughs> out, outcome where some some terrorist attack happens that compels the the next president of the United States to plunk down a hundred thousand troops in Damascus. America exhausts itself on yet another one of these wars that has no decisive end, uh-huh. and then. In the you know we 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 continue to ring up deficit spending, instability spirals, the uh, the the clash of civilizations that I don't believe in continues <laughs> to gain adherence on both sides, and then suddenly China says, "Hey, America's really weak. It's finally time to take back Taiwan." Right. That's my that's my scary twenty first century. Right. Yeah. And and that's plausible. Totally. Or the scary 21st century scenario is also, you know, hey, let's let's not do this. Let's retrench. Let's, um, you know, fix our defense budgets. And then that same scenario ends up playing out anyhow. So that's the big question of grand strategy. Right. Um, What to do, what to do. We have all these big choices ahead of us. Well, Laura Daniels, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're welcome to come back at any time to talk about some major grand strategy issue (laughs) as as they come up, which they always do. Um, Do uh, do you have anything to uh, anything to plug your your writing, your your online presence, anything that you would like to you would like our audience to uh, to go any place you you would like the audience to go find you on the Internet? Totally. Of course. Well, you can find me on Twitter. I'm Laura F. Daniels. Um, I also do write. I had a piece up recently on Brookings blog, uh, Order from Chaos, you can check out, which was on Syria and Russia. So (laughs) if you were interested in this podcast and you want further reading, you can find it there. Um, And yeah, you can you can find me online. Uh, Once again, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You can find the podcast on iTunes by searching for Ambassadors at Large. You can subscribe for free and get every every episode downloaded automatically. If you like the epi- if you like the episode, if you like the podcast, give us a five star review or even like a four star review. It really helps to spread the word about the podcast. You can also find us online along with an associated blog, music, research papers, and much more at joegenie.com. That's j o e g e n i dot com slash podcast. Thank you so much for listening and happy holidays. Or happy Mayan apocalypse, depending on how we're looking at it with this podcast. (laughs) Happy holidays, the end of the world. (laughs) 